0: You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this
1: rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy.
0: Our guest tonight for two hours is esoteric scholar Mark Stavish. Mark last joined us on 21st Century Radio in 1992. When, that's that's 27 years ago guys when we were he was introduced to us by our mutual friend Paul Trattner who had invited Mark to Maryland to participate in a seminar on the roots of the western mystery tradition Mark Stavish is a respected authority on western spiritual traditions the author of 26 books 26 books Mark geez, we- published in seven languages, including the Path of Alchemy and Kabbalah for Health and Wellness. He is the founder and director of the Institute for the Hermetic Studies and the Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin Saint Fund. He has appeared on radio shows, television, and in major print media, including Coast to Coast and the History Channel, BBC, The New York Times, and the author of Blog, Vox Hermes. He lives in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. I didn't even know there was a Wyoming, Pennsylvania. We're going to talk to him about his new book in which he provides instructions on how to identify egregores. Uh, Free yourself from a parasitic and destructive collective entity and destroy an egregore should be should the need arise, revealing how egregores form the foundation of nearly all human interactions. The author shows how egregores have moved into popular culture and media. I'm not surprised, (laughs) underscoring the importance of intense selectivity in the information we accept and the ways we perceive the world and our place in it. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Mark.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back.
0: Have you been these last 27 years, brother?
1: Well, pretty busy, as you can tell from the introduction uh, that you gave me.
0: (laughs) 27 books, seven languages. My gosh, Rudy, Uh, how many languages can you speak?
1: Well, I don't do the translations. I tell folks that what happens is someone just decides they really like a book and then... uh, they uh, deal with the translations with the publishers overseas because, trust me, I, I do not speak Russian or Estonian. <laughs> so so you,
0: have, you have a book in Russia?
1: Uh, two. The two poem, in two Russian, two in Estonian, one in Polish.
0: I got one in Russia, one in Germany, one in France, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, we can't get into that. I wish we could talk more about that, Mark. But you last joined us 27 years ago, and thank you for reminding us about our dear friend, brother Paul h Tratner, a truly extraordinary soul he was the vice president of the AUM esoteric study center
1: of which i am the president did you know him well i didn't particularly know him well although i did have to deal with him and his wife often uh, i would go down to the baltimore area and dc because of uh, david uh, burnett uh, of course you know dave yeah and uh, he was involved with uh, the rosicrucian order AM work uh, for many years and as they were and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time uh, being involved in that in the 80s into the early 90s.
0: Boy, they were some time. I'm telling you, a lot of things were just coming together again, and things started to feel really good. Well, yeah. tell us a little about your new book, Egregores. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: Nobody gets it right, so don't worry about it. It's Greek. It's Greek. <laughs> we say Egregores, although some say Egregores. Uh, and then I understand someone said that the second G should be silent, as in gnome. But we just say uh, egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny.
0: That's a very interesting title. That is really an interesting title. When I saw that, I thought oh, we got to have this guy on again. Because, you uh, know
1: what about the title, it's interesting. Is that we wanted something more creative. But that was just the working title, because that's what the book is about, mm-hmm. and uh, we were trying to get something snappier, but it just wasn't working, so we see it with the working title, and it seems to have worked. It's taken off.
0: Yeah, good going. Congratulations, and well-needed, because this is a, a subject seldom discussed or even understood. Um, what, then, is the relationship between an egregore and a topa?
1: Well, it's that's a, kind of a quick one to jump into. Um all oh, I, tulpas I, I, are thought forms, but not all thought forms are tulpas. <laughs> we, we could start with that. Yeah, well, tell uh, us
0: what a tolpa is.
1: Well, that's just, a, a, that comes from uh, the writings of Alexandra David Neal and her experiences in Tibet mm-hmm. in the mid, well, the first third of the 20th century, in which she discusses the power of thought to create something which becomes tangible to others first as kind of a sense or a feeling, and then visually, and then actually believably materially in some form. And, of course, her famous experiment was the creation of a thought form, if you will, of a jolly monk. And then, of course, the idea that she goes on into the in her uh, story is that it takes on kind of a life of its own, and she has to go through a tremendous amount of effort to dissolve it and to... Uh, you know, bring it under control and to destroy it, to, to mm-hmm. turn it back into its, uh, you know, the, the place where it came from, you know, her own mind, and just get rid of it. Now, a egregore is really the same thing. It's a thought form, but it is, exists on two forms. One is kind of the classical sense. And the classical sense of this thought form is that through our prayers and rituals and through our visualizations, we down here on Earth, in the physical world, have the potential or the ability to connect to not only the psychic domain, but also the intelligences and entities that exist within the psychic domain. Mm-hmm. And that this egregore then consists of those intelligences as well, whatever they may happen to be. We could think of them as, whether we call them gods or en- uh, goddesses, um, demons or angels, whatever, or or saints, and that these Entities or intelligences can then work through this uh, tunnel, if you will, this psychic conduit which we have created, a egregore, and its participating entities, and influence or affect life on Earth, and particularly for those who are involved. That's the classical definition. The other one which we deal with is kind of a more Jungian one, in which we just think of it as the collective attitude or beliefs of a group. Now, that has two parts, because you can have collective attitudes and beliefs of a group but not necessarily have a psych or the belief believe in anything psychic around it mm-hmm. okay like a collective consciousness we're going to err on the side of caution here and say that regardless of whether you believe in it or not that it somehow is there that there is this kind of amorphous psychic field that affects those who are within it and that can be your pta you know that could be your golf club that can be your esoteric order can be anything
0: when did you first become aware of the notion of the egregore?
1: Well, anyone who's done any reading in Western esotericism, say even you know, the, the writings of Elvis Levy or any of the French uh, Martinist or Rosicrucian writings, will have come across the word. It's there. But it's not really expounded upon. It's clearly delineated for you and defined, but we somehow uh, uh, escape it. The emphasis just isn't placed on it. And then in the 1990s, when I became involved with uh, the philosophers of nature, you know, the founder of that, uh, Jean Dubuis, uh, was very adamant about freeing oneself from the influence of these collective forces, these egregores. And I really didn't quite grasp it at first until I began to understand what he was talking about. Because so many of the esoteric orders the occult orders magic orders you you hear them talking more and more about their egregore at that time up until the early 90s amort never used the term uh you saw it loosely used by some of the british occult groups okay but you saw it becoming more of a thing it was kind of a badge of uh, uh of honor a sales pitch if you will and some will use a different term they'll say we're a fully contacted order i'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with that phrase what they're saying, contacted or connected to what? Okay? And that's the egregore they're talking about. And, of course, he was uh, familiar with a lot of the more um, shady side of things that will go on in some of these groups, okay? As was Jacques Vallée. I think he was the guest on your show several times. You know, there's, uh, things aren't always as they appear. So instead of having your psychic energy and idealism abused, as we can talk about later, he said just, you know, Separate yourself out from these as much as you can, and just focus on your own path.
0: Yes, focus and that's
1: on really that. what triggered it. And then later on, I would discuss this theme with uh, the the well known esoteric author Jocelyn Godwin. And in fact, that's how the book came about. I, I was just having lunch with him. I think it was August of 2016 at the uh, the Lost Dog Cafe in Binghamton, New York. And I just said to him, "Hey, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm thinking about writing this monograph on Egregor's he said, "Well, thank God, because if you don't, I'll have to." So, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> I'm sorry. But... <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Well, and I... then that's just it. Then it just took off. So, it, 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 like an egregore, it, it, it took on a life of its own, and then the book was written.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Jacques Vallée. He's my favorite ufologist. He's more than a ufologist. He was, in my opinion, so far ahead of his time in regards to what. Is really going on with alleged UFOs and real UFOs, etc., and I was just amazed as as to how he could protect himself from from falling into the same errors that so many other ufologists and others have of uh, taking advantage of information which is not substantial. And that's one of the things you point out before that if uh, you're going to be using information, make sure it's 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 uh, some of the best you can get rather than maybe a bunch of theories, right?
1: Well, and that's the point. Whenever you're dealing with anything, and and egregores that we deal with most often uh, that are most important to us in terms of manipulation are of a religious or philosophical nature or metaphysical, say religious or metaphysical nature, or of a political nature. And because of that, what they essentially need to do is abuse our goodwill. And... You know, people don't want to believe that that happens, but I, I have extensive, you know, professional and volunteer experience in social services and can tell you that in almost all these charitable movements, your goodwill is, is abused mm-hmm. extensively, okay? And that's the notion of these things. We see this with uh, the cover-ups that have occurred in various religious movements regarding you know child sexual abuse and adult sexual abuse that the goodwill of individuals has to be manipulated or abused in some fashion same in politics i mean all these political fundraisers and then we go out and we find out you know what what's really not happening with the money um so that being said you know people become attached to an ideal first remember that they become attached to an ideal and what is an ideal but it's an archetype. It's an image, it's a fantasy, it's a dream, but a very powerful and real one. It's a topa in that sense that they hope to create. They hope to change the world, okay, through their collective effort and action and are focused on it. So this dream becomes so powerful that they will essentially ignore all information to the contrary, even if it's destructive to them. And you can see that across history. And you can see that across the lives of people, you know, in your own life in different times. So, again, we have to always step back and say, what's really happening here? Is this relationship good for me? You know, and is this too good to be true?
0: Well, you know, in my own personal life, I've had some real struggles with this, especially when it comes to animals, and because Um, I know we're upon a break here, but I wanted to mention this, Uh, especially with the abuse of animals. Mm -hmm. So I fall, uh, I make people that get in touch with me about donkeys, horses, dogs, rabbits, etc., etc., etc. Because once I start contributing in that area, I seem to have become a member of just about all these other organizations that try to reach me at the same time. And I feel terrible about it, and I I know that I have to withdraw from it. I don't know if it's an egregore or not, but I do know that that it's a a struggle that I have, which is um, irrational in part. And with that, we better take a break here. Our guest is Mark Stavish, egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Louvre, real life wizard and author of John D. and the Empire of Angels. You can find out more about me and magic at jasonloove.com. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Bob Hieronymus.
0: Dr. John D. was the only person I ever wanted to be in Halloween. And then, of course, when I got dressed up as Dr. John D., nobody knew who I was. And when I told them, they still didn't know, so it didn't make any difference. So, Do you remember Dr. John D? I'm sure you have.
1: Of course, of course.
0: Have you got that new book?
1: Yes, uh, I got a review copy of it, and uh, I did read it. Uh, in fact, there's uh, some fellow who uh, I, I haven't uh, really read his stuff, but I'll give a plug for him if I can remember it. He, he has a website on uh, something about alchemy in the Susquehanna So uh, maybe your listeners can look that up. He has some interesting stuff that he proposes about John Dee and the New World. So uh, I spoke with him briefly, and I said, you know, this is the kind of stuff, I don't know if it's true, but it's a great story, and I want it to be. That's right. That's right.
0: Boy, there are a lot of great stories with John Dee, though, really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, And some of them true, and some of them are. Well, were your experiences with various egregores positive or negative uh, yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, enough of that. Uh, no. Yeah, it's, it's like anything. Uh, you know, when we're in it, uh, sometimes it's negative and we don't know it. You know, sometimes it's positive positive we don't know it. It's like being an adolescent, you know. You <laughs> clean your room and, and eat your beans, you know. It's uh, it's good for you, but you don't know it. But it, it's like any group. Because remember, uh, gores are essentially uh, a social control mechanism. And of course, I, I grabbed that phrase from from Jacques Vallee, you know, when he refers to the UFO experience. Yeah, because anytime we have a UFO experience, whatever that happens to be, right? Uh, whenever we have a paranormal experience, whatever that happens to be, and an egregore does fall within that domain of something paranormal, uh, because we don't really understand it, what's going on. Remember, it is a cult, meaning it's hidden. Okay, it's not obvious to us at the time. Often. Um, even if we're told about it we don't really have the markers to recognize it it is a social control mechanism and and a lot of things that go on socially that that shape us and direct us like you know how to have manners and be polite and hold the door say please and thank you these can be very beneficial to us and the same with different groups we're in i've been in a lot of groups uh... you know esoteric groups and and non-esoteric groups and and they were you know a mixed experience they were very good at times and. And at times, uh, not so good. You know, questionable or, or just not so pleasant or just sometimes boring, you know. And it's okay, well, that's nice and it's time to go. Or you outgrow them.
0: Will you note that most of humanity is unconscious of the fact that they live and move in a world of phantasmagoria? What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, of course, what, what does it mean to the uh, phantasmagoria is that they, they live and move in a world of imagination and a fantasy, uh, and, and that that fantasy and imagination is incredibly powerful. Ionis um, Culliano in his book Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, which really is must-reading for anyone, anyone who's interested in anything about uh, the mind and the influence of images on the mind as an individual, but particularly on the masses, should be reading that book. Um, you know, we're constantly bombarded by imagery because speech comes after images. You know, we, we see something and then we sing, attempt to articulate it. And that whether that having to do with the earliest attempts at speech development in the human species or even as we attempt to uh, speak a foreign language and, and vaguely remember what the word is for a chair or a table, we see it, we attempt to articulate it in some fashion. So images have the most powerful effect on us. That's why the, the movement away from a literary culture, you know, we see that fewer and fewer people are reading, um, is extremely dangerous because not only does it mean that the certain critical functions and imaginative functions aren't being developed, because as we read, we have to stop, and even if we don't really know we're doing it, attempt to formulate in our mind an image or form of some kind of, of what, we're, what we're reading, what we're, you know, thinking of. Hence the famous power of fairy tales and uh, and, and tales of any kind of storytellers across cultures, but even bedtime tales for children, you know the fantasy involved. My children used to love it when I tell them stories. No matter how boring they were, they simply liked the fact that I was telling it to them. Sure. Now instead we have it fed to us, not just spoon-fed, but shovel-fed to us with a steam shovel, uh, constantly being hyper-stimulated with images of different kinds. And of course, they are not... All equally powerful, but they're not um, inert either. They have an effect on our psyches, on our emotional response. Let's be clear: they have an effect on our emotional response.
0: Well, you give several reports of some very negative experiences or egregores. Why did you pick those particular examples? And could you because give us they were some?
1: extreme. I mean, mean, if you're going to give an example of something like this, Mm -hmm. I I felt that it was really important to give very powerful and extreme examples because that way people who have had a similar experience would go, oh, wow, I'm not alone. Oh, wow, I'm not alone. (laughs) It's both a good and a not-so-good thing. But many people won't have those extreme experiences. They may have something much lighter, but it gives them a perspective. It gives them a sense of what could have been and where they are in the spectrum. So I felt that if we were going to give a, uh, an example, you need something extremely uh, stark and polarizing so that it stands out. That's why I gave those examples.
0: Mm-hmm. I also was just very excited. Every time I hear De- uh, Dion Fortune's name, the images from 40, 50 years ago go through my mind. And the thrills that I had in reading her work, uh, and 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 feeling uh, that I was becoming part of something. But Dion Fortune used to say that the best way of judging the spiritual health of any organization was not to take its public teachings as statements or proof of its integrity. So, according to her, what's the best way to judge? spiritual health
1: what, what was her best way of judging spiritual health
0: yes what did she say
1: i'm pretty sure she said to look at look at the the students if i remember correctly she said look at look at how the the students are doing are are, are acting that's and, how you can tell the the, the quality of it I, I may be mistaken but that's what if i remember well correctly.
0: on page 30 you noted uh by their fruits you shall know them
1: yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And,
0: and I was so I was so happy about this one particular area because her fruits <laughs> are pretty great. Um, how do you feel about Aeon?
1: Well, it's you know it's very difficult because the um, uh, different esoteric groups appeal to different types, different char- character types, and people. Mm-hmm. And there is a tendency for us to gravitate towards the thing we're already strong in, and therefore create further imbalance. We may not know it, but we do because it just feels so good because we're comfortable with it. Um, it's really important that in any path we, we balance ourselves out. That's why you see this, this terrible habit in, in certain aspects of the educational system today, particularly in private schools, where the idea is that, well, you don't really have to learn anything. You just have to learn enough to know how to look it up. I've had students say that to me in the university. Mm -hmm. Or the idea is, well, you know, I'm never going to be a mathematician. What do I need to take algebra for? What do I need geometry for? I'm not going to be an artist. What do I need to take art for? Mm -hmm. And the idea is to be well-rounded. And in that well-rounded, we bring out different aspects of ourselves that we normally wouldn't have. And we see within, uh, so any esoteric group that forces you, hold your nose to it, if you will, to do things you really don't like, so that you can be well-rounded, mm-hmm. uh, is probably going to be better off. But the problem is, most groups today, because they're either mail order, or they are—they're uh, not—they they can't. They simply we don't have a traditional society, so they can't live in a traditional manner. They're highly dependent upon the generosity and uh, the check-writing ability of their members. So a lot of these groups don't put a lot of pressure on their students. So. Uh, increasingly we're seeing that uh, the fruits are not exactly what we would want them to be in a lot of groups. But that's, you know, that basis of hers, she was a very powerful and dynamic person. And when she wrote those words, there there was a whole different crop of students than there are today.
0: I'll say, yeah, that was quite a while ago. I'm t- I'm trying to think of the dates, but right now they're not coming to my mind.
1: Well, it would have been in the 30s, probably in the 30s when she wrote most likely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm very comfortable with her books. I I, yeah. I expect, especially because bef- long before that I was obviously not obviously, but I was first of course an agnostic, then an atheist, and then I rediscovered the whole the whole banana after that. And oh, That's wonderful. And felt uh, well, part of that had to do with I was going to be a priest and unfortunately when I got to spend time with um, others who were also going to, I realized that I didn't fit in at all in many ways, especially when we bumped into the Dead Sea Scrolls or we talked about the Gnostics or something like that. Uh, they weren't necessarily very happy to discuss any of that. And uh, mm-hmm. and, and bishops certainly uh, basically pushed me in the direction of saying, well, th- this is not necessarily where you want to go, Bob. And, of course, I was sad to do that because I had so many fond experiences uh, when I worked on the altar, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know the experiences up there with the energy, the the lights, and the yeah. and and the, and the lifting of yourself and consciousness is just extraordinary. And then when you bring this, you can talk to the. I've learned that you could talk to uh, the women, nuns, but you I couldn't talk to any of the men about it. Any of the uh, the males. It really was very disturbing, and it really. Sh- uh, changed my life considerably from that standpoint. But, oh, we're going to take a break right here on 21st Century Radio. Well, we are going to. Mark Stavish is our guest. Egregors, The Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny, Inner Traditions, HermeticInstitute.org. Hi, this is Barbara Hand Clow. I'm an internationally acclaimed ceremonial teacher, author, and a Mayan calendar researcher. And I've written, for example, Revelations of the Ruby Crystal, the Pleiadian Agenda, and the Mayan Code. I also have taught at sacred sites throughout the world. And my website is www.HanKlau2012.com. Thank you for joining Dr. Bob Hieronymus on 21st Century Radio. And we were talking about some of my limited experiences on the altar. And you, I think, you kind of suggested that you might have had something similar.
1: Well, yeah, I just want to pick up on two things there. Uh, One is, you know, I just, you know, during the commercial break, we had this wonderful commercial from St. Jude's. And the fellow said, it feels great to know that you're putting your energies into something that does such good work. And, you know, being familiar with St. Jude's and other similar uh, uh, institutions, I can say, you know, they do good work. So we're just picking them up because your listeners will have heard that. That's what happens in all of these things. You know, like when you were at the altar, you were putting your energies into something, and it felt good. And you had these wonderful experiences at the altar. That was the egregore. Okay, you were feeling this. It was just inside of you and outside of you, and all of these things were happening. But egregores are, are, they belong to duality. They're a created entity. They're a living being. So they have both positive aspects, which you were experiencing at the altar, and then they have negative aspects, which can be parasitic. And we often don't know that or recognize it. You kind of got an encounter with the more parasitic aspect when you went to talk about your experiences and, and other areas of personal growth you were seeing that that wasn't really accepted as part of the egregore as a whole. The egregore was defining your experience. Remember we said it was a social control mechanism? Mm -hmm. It was defining your experience and then defining what you could say and defining what you could think and defining what you could express and discuss. And we see that today with what? With political correctness. Political correctness is essentially an egregore. It doesn't have a group like we can point to it and say that's its headquarters and those are its rites and rituals but whenever we start doing that excessive definition of this is what you can say this is what you can't say these are acceptable words these are unacceptable this is what you can think and feel that's social control and that is an egregore so it's across the board in a variety of ways that we can see and experience it but going back to the religious one like you had at the altar You're having this great uplifting experience and you're beginning to wonder, well, what about the others? Aren't they having it too? Well, they very well may. Some don't. We know some people don't, but they very well may, but they just, they can't integrate it. You know, they can't fit it into the overall and then it's done and they go back to their daily life. And you can't imagine how many people I've heard that story from that you just told. I have these great uplifting experiences. But then when I went to the rest of it, it fell flat. Mm -hmm. Or I was told not to think about that or to talk about that.
0: Yeah, that's how you're guided anyway, not to think, talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Which I couldn't shut my mouth, unfortunately. And of course, get yourself in trouble when you uh, relate those experiences uh, that others are not having. And also, when you find out from the nuns that they know that they can't share any of that information. And if they do, they're going to be ignored. And that, that saddened me greatly because they were my good friends, uh, people that I shared these things with. And I didn't expect anyone else to have uh, felt those things. But as soon as I started talking about these uh, energies that I see and lights that I saw being released, they all mm-hmm. nodded their heads and said, oh, yes, that's ah, da 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 So then, as, as you noted, there are positive Egregore, egregores and you mentioned the golden dawn and amwork in your book could you explain those a little for our audience
1: well whenever you get in a group again any kind of group there's this kind of collective awareness or consciousness that guides and directs it and it can be spontaneous uh you know such as uh, your uh, you, you join the local art league you know the local art studio well there becomes a certain way of doing things that's there a certain kind of generality uh, archetypes or stereotypes that are in place. We see it all the time, okay? And that's fine because you're there to, you know, put your art up and to talk about art and do those things. We see the same thing happen to when we join uh, philosophical groups or esoteric or spiritual groups. And that can be, you know, very beneficial to us because the egregore kind of acts as uh, bumpers, if you will. You know, some I'm sure all of your listeners are, have gone bowling at one time or another, and I'm sure some of them are expert bowlers, and some of them have even probably remember that magical moment when they scored a perfect game or even just came close to one. And then I'm sure they all remember that moment when everything was a gutter ball. And, of course, you know, when, when... <laughs> that's a long moment. Hey, <laughs> right, we all remember those. So, you know, when you take kids bowling for the first few times, they're dropping it on the wood, and they're barely getting the ball down the the, the alley, and that's fine. But they put bumpers up, and the bumpers are to keep that ball rolling all the way to the end. <laughs> 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 and that's really, again, what the Edgar Gore does. It acts as kind of a bumper or a funnel or a conduit to keep you moving in a particular direction so you don't stray too far off course. Now, of course, you know those bumpers are up, and that ball may go all the way down and it may just hit the right pin and you get a strike or you get a spare or something. Or it just goes to the edge and you just knock one or two down. But slowly, as a child, you get better and you finally you don't have to roll with the bumpers anymore. And and that's what the anchor cores do for us. And Of course, Amwork uh, went from nothing in 1909 and 1915 to a worldwide entity at its peak at around... Nineteen ninety-two, ninety-three was probably its peak period. Uh, it's been on a catastrophic decline since then uh, for a variety of reasons. It, it's gone wider internationally, but in terms of its influence and size, at least in the um, Anglo-Saxon world, it's not close to what it was. Um, so you have this wonderful organization in which you could have some, meet some really great people and uh, have some great experiences. And that's a kind of esoteric egregore that was was really wonderful in that, you know, better half of the 20th century. The Golden Dawn had a different one, but at the same time, they were more open about what it was and how it worked on the individual member. And um, we see uh, uh, in the book where we talk about how the egregore can ingratiate itself into uh, the individual and Pat Zalewski, you know elucidates that in his book on how that works remember the people the person is willingly participating you know they're not they're, they're not just taken off the street they're willingly opening themselves up to these other energies these inner energies both within themselves and external to themselves these spiritual forces that are outside of them so that they can grow as a person grow within that organization grow within that psychic forces and uh, become a more whole and more complete. So some of the egregores can be very powerful. They can be very potent and very positive. But again, because all of them are of duality, all of them can at different times become parasitic or even toxic.
0: Well, how do you go about dismantling an egregore?
1: Well, it all depends. You know, if it's if it's just a personal separation, you know, it, it's uh, it can be very difficult. But you can be done. And for example. They're not limited to spiritual forces. As we said, they're also uh, in pop culture too. We see them all the time. Okay, find anything that you're obsessed with. You have just an overwhelming attachment to in some way, uh, and you'll see that people just can't let go of some of the uh, either the heroes of their youth or their experiences of certain times. Um, it's like the guy who was in the military for you know a few years, uh, maybe when they're 18 to 25 or something like that. And it's been 20 years ago, but they're still wearing their U.S. Army cap or their Marine cap. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine. Mm-hmm. And that there's not this is anything against Marines, but that's the nature of that overwhelming identification that's easy to see. Uh, we see other people who, you know, I've, I've been in line at Dunkin' Donuts, and, you know, seeing people in their, you know, 50s and 60s wearing Ozzy Osbourne T-shirts and talking to people about this. Mm-hmm. It's it becomes, it's not that there's anything wrong with this. It's about when does something become so strong? that it becomes an overwhelming identifier for you and is controlling and directing your life whether you want it to or not. And that's the really important part here. This is the thing people have to decide. I'm not telling you not to listen to rock and roll. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, or not to join the military or not to do anything. I'm just saying, when does the individual things that you're doing, it could be the PTA, it could be the Art League, it could be anything becomes so overwhelming in your life that that's all you identify with. That's what I'm talking about.
0: How do you okay? dismantle the egregore, though? Well, uh,
1: for yourself, you have to extract yourself from it. Because dismantling it, we'll get into that in a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the strategy to, 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 to get out of it is really you have to separate yourself from it and just, you know, take all those things associated with it, put it in a box and stick it in your closet for a month or two. Two months mm-hmm. is good. And just notice how your life feels freer. Now, you'll see this with people who are hyper-religious or hyper-new-agey, as I call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have to have pictures or icons or tapestries all around them all the time, reminding them of their, of their spiritual dedication. I've seen people like that in politics. You know, whatever social cause they're in, it's all over the place. You know, their bumper stickers, their shirts. I mean, it just doesn't end. Okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you just want to save them. Get a life because this isn't it. Okay? Yeah. If you take all that away and put that in a box in a closet, what are you then? That's when the tension starts because that's when you open up and have space. See, and in that space, the person has to be who they are. They first have to find themselves. They have to have freedom to be who they are and be okay with themselves without identifying with all these external causes, whether it be spiritual, political, philosophical, or what have you. Okay. Remember, it's know thyself. The purpose of spirituality is know thyself. You know, not save the world.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, <laughs>
1: that's, that's, that's that's beyond our pay grade.
0: Yeah. You know, yes, I know, but most most of us give a get a try to give a shot at it. Uh, yeah. As soon I, as,
1: see, it's like you can't save it. You, no, can't, you can't. You can only you can only fix yourself and then fix the world to the degree that you fixed yourself. And there's a difference between the two. It's like, you know, one of the commercials there was saying, you know, we're going to end poverty and deforestation. No, you're not. You're not going to end it. This is samsara. This is duality. It's always going to be there. You're never going to end it. It will move. It will change. You will do good to the best of your ability. You will do good as best you can. Mm -hmm. But change is inevitable. Therefore, you will never get rid of it. And that's a very difficult thing for many people who have utopian ideals to grasp. And utopian ideals are one of the main motivators of late 20th century and early 21st century spirituality, and it's the main force of manipulation. It's the main force of abusive people, because it's constantly directing their energies outside themselves, you know, rather than into knowing themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why Dibouille was one of the reasons why he was against... You know, egregores is because so many of them directed your energies all instantly to the, the outside of yourself rather than directing your energies into know thyself. So then, the question you ask, how do you dismantle an egregore? Well, extremely violently. I mean, the only way an egregore can really be dismantled is through fire. You destroy everything. To an ash. You know, so... If you—that's why when you you see in different times, different items of a magical or profoundly political, powerful political interest are captured, uh, they're destroyed in fire, yes. completely burned. Mm-hmm. That's how it's done. Uh, and
0: um, No, we're talking about a physical fire.
1: A physical fire. Everything's destroyed. Mm-hmm. Now the egregore itself, to some degree, will still exist on a psychic level. But without the constant input from its physical people down here, without the material and mechanisms to support it, it will eventually wither and die. That's why you see, of course, as it becomes what happens is things become a cascading uh, uh, or an escalating feedback loop. So things cascade. You know, it's like how do you go broke? Slow at first, and then really quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, as as the various churches begin to close, at first it's very slow and then it becomes cascading. You know, as the different fraternal groups begin to close, first it's very slow, and then it becomes cascading very quickly. And then, of course, what are you left? You're left with a vacuum, because they provided a sense of meaning. So what do you see now in 2019? You see that most religious and spiritual groups, even the metaphysical, the neo-pagan, most of the esoteric, are functionally worthless in a spiritual domain, and they've replaced all their practices with some forms of uh, political activism. And when when metaphysical groups or religious groups promote political activism as their principal reason for being, they no longer have any connection to their uh, initial spiritual force.
0: Well, that sounds they've, that sounds a lot like what's happened today.
1: Well, that's what's going on.
0: Indeed, that's what's. Indeed. Uh, what effect? Oh, nope, we don't have time for another question. My boss is telling me on that. But, but let me throw one another question in here. Uh, on page 24, you mentioned flying roll documents. What are flying roll documents?
1: Oh, those are just a, a wonderful piece of work created by uh, some of the members in the Golden Dawn as lectures for their uh, adept-level grades. They're published. You can get them, and there's some very nice commentary on them out there. And within those flying rolls is the discussion, one of the discussions is of egregores. That's the technical document within the Golden Dawn where you could find that information.
0: Oh, I see. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's I what
1: did. it's for. Yeah. It basically, you know, it's sort of like Amwork saying a monograph or something mm-hmm. like that, or a lesson, like you might find. They call them, I, I don't even know really where they got them. They're in from, I'd have to look it up again. But they call them flying rolls.
0: Well, time's up on this hour. We'll be back with Mark Stavish. Egregores, the Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny, Inner Traditions, HermeticInstitute.org. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, our executive producer and research assistant, and my boss, who really bosses me around, friends, as Laura Cordner, our engineer, is Anita Brockington. Now, our guest tonight is Mark Stavish, Egregores, the Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny, it's published by our friends at Inner Traditions, and you can reach him at hermeticinstitute.org. You want to tell us anything about hermeticinstitute.org before we continue, Mark?
1: Well, sure. Folks can just go to the website and particularly go to our uh, blog. They can have a link to the blog. is on the website, Fox Hermes, and uh, they can learn, uh, out, learn more information about us. But in particular, our big event is our annual conference, which is coming up on May 4th. It's a one-day event. It's here in uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, easy access from uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, Delaware, even D.C. area, even Boston. It's uh, five hours from Boston. So uh, we have easy access for most of the East Coast. and We've got a great lineup of speakers, and uh, that's our big event. And a full list of our publications and audio programs uh, can be found both on Amazon and uh, also YouTube. So that's the short story about us.
0: Someday we'll get the long story on you. How about? (laughs)
1: Hey, hey, you know, if you're going to be driving that bus up 81, you got to stop in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and Mm -hmm. get some attention here when you do your. uh, I can come visit you and see you guys on the bus.
0: That would be a good idea if I could control the world. (laughs) (laughs) How are you driving?
1: Are you driving this thing? No, I'm not driving
0: this thing. By the the people that got behind me to do this, and you know who's in control of this now. A corporation called volkswagen when volkswagen saw how this was uh seen how the bus was seen this past uh in, in los angeles this past february the 16th mm-hmm. we had uh in one day there were 48 different articles that came out in seven languages of uh, it, it, it This bus is somehow connected with a lot of souls in many different ways. Maybe it's just about hope, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. because this has been such a dark time and it continues in some ways to be that way. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why we thought three years ago that we would put this together again, because three years ago we were getting a new president and uh, my view of what that president is has not changed and I do not think he can do a presidential job. I don't want to embarrass you or 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 make you feel bad about that, but I feel have to feel outspoken because I think he in himself and in some ways is an egregore.
1: That's well why. they all are. I mean <laughs> they all are. That's that's the point. And I mean if 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 you look at you know, politically, I mean that whole notion of when Obama was elected and they have the pillars there and they have the, the seal, you know, president-elect of the United States and all this stuff, I mean, this is just an attempt to reframe things and tap into psychic forces. I mean, they're all agro It's just a matter of what kind. And then, and all we're saying is, you know, you have to recognize when you get involved in these things that they are so big and that the different archetypal forces that are behind them, you know. Uh, that you have to begin to recognize what influence this may, may have on you. And, and does it become all-consuming? Does it become all-controlling? Uh, Do you forget yourself? Do you lose yourself in the greater cause? If so, then you're probably not discovering yourself. And there again we say, okay, but it's a choice. Do you know thyself or serve the big cause? and it's rarely can we get rare, it takes a very rare person to do both that rare person to do both would we say would kind of be a form of karma yoga and that's uh that's a rarity
0: there's one thing i have to ask about symbols on, because there was something on page 22 that i was interested in reading in your book you state that today we witness the destruction of symbols and analogies by an unprecedented reification of them could you interpret that for me
1: well we're constantly uh, again reframing taking something out of context and turning it into something else that it isn't Um, and often one of the things we do is overly psychologize things we see within occultism and esotericism one of the things that occurred very heavily from Oh, probably the '40s on, but by the '60s and '70s, '80s, it was in just it was it was on steroids. Well, it was turning everything into some kind of Jungian archetype. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, not even ever having read Jung and even knowing what it is, just kind of trying to turn into some notion of well, this is you know what, what is an archetype or, or that kind of image, not realizing that these are not inert entities; these are are not inert symbols. That there's a force or intelligence behind them, and that it's. Uh, you know, intelligence means awareness, just like you and I have awareness. And not, not just like a computer program is in some kind of intelligence. This is something else. There's a, a limited or vast, depending on what we're talking about, degree of self-awareness. So constantly reframing that, uh, constantly destroying symbols in that manner. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: as you, I'm sure you're well aware of the work of, um, and you mentioned them already, Carl Jung and others, especially that... Rollo uh, rolo may who gets into discussion deep discussions and for decades concerning the importance of symbols and the fact that that uh, one of the serious problems we have in the world is that we do not have a set of symbols we do not have we are lo- we have lost the symbol meaningful symbols let's put it that way and that kind of thing
1: yeah but, you, but that's because you can't have it both ways you, you know, in order to have a meaningful symbol set, you, you have to have a, a certain commonality of culture and commonality of experience. So when we decide that cultures are interchangeable and cultures don't matter, I mean, rea- you know, reality is when people talk about multiculturalism, they're not really talking about culture. They're talking about a restaurant. They're talking about a style of dress. They're talking about maybe a language, mm-hmm. which, of course, languages define how we think and perceive. But they're not really talking about culture. They're not talking about deeply held and embedded values. Because when you do that, we realize that too much multiplicity is a tower of battle. It's chaos. Just as not enough of it is sterility and death. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, between these two extremes of inert nothingness, if you want to call it that, and just rampant change or motion. You know, we try to find some meaningful existence in this cosmic scheme of things, and that's where things arise. So if we're going to have symbols that have meaning, that means we're also going to have to have common experiences that have meaning. And again, this is have, goes back to the notion of how much of an individual are we, how much of a role is the community, and um, I mean, these, are just, you know, these are just the tricky and difficult questions of the age.
0: Well, let's, let's return to where, where we were before. What effect and focus do you think magical practices have upon politics and world events?
1: I think there's two answers to that question. One is we have the popular notion of, of magical uh, action. And, of course, we, we had all these folks getting out there and, you know, praying for world peace. you know, as a joke became sort of peace but peas. And we have all these folks getting out there and, um, you know, going to pray for the uh, failure of of the president on one level or another. And at the same time, nothing really happens, okay? And and the reason is multifold. One is because um, real magic takes place in silence. It takes place in secret. That's why it's called an occult art. The other thing is... What you're seeing with these public displays, with these public prayers, you know, pray-ins for this, pray-ins for that, whatever it happens to be, pick pick whatever happens to be in the news, okay? Uh, Again, it's a public event, so the energy is quickly dissipated. However, there's the other notion of real occultism, real magic, and that is something that most people will never hear about. Now, we do talk about in the book, the revivification of an egregore, and it had to do with the attempt to revivify uh, an Italian egregore, the imperial uh, or Roman egregore. Not imperial, but it might have been, uh, it was one of the ancient Roman egregore after uh, World War One. And, of course, the folks involved in that attribute the success, Mussolini's success on the March on Rome in 1922, I think, to their efforts, mm-hmm. or the efforts of that ritual in some degree. So we have those very direct magical applications, okay? More importantly, we have a very real magical application, which is what I talked about earlier, which is where you have highly paid consultants in media and in psychology manipulating the message and the images and the tones and the sounds and the colors all in very precise ways in an effort to influence people to feel and believe, not think or know, but feel and believe a particular idea and therefore undertake a particular action, namely vote for their candidate or support them in some manner. That's the real occultism, and that's the real magic, and we need to really wrap our heads around that.
0: What's the importance of silence?
1: Because that's where the terror is met. That's where you get to know yourself and know what you're made of. And that's where you get the real insight and wisdom about what matters and what doesn't.
0: And when you, you know, when you,
1: when you run into folks who are constantly talking about their so-called psychic or spiritual experiences, you immediately know one of several things. One is they're a dilettante. Two is they're a fool. Uh, Three is they're psychically obsessed. And uh, fourth is, well, fill in the blank with anything you like there, their attention seeker, what have you. Because anyone who is constantly talking about their so-called psychic or spiritual experiences probably isn't having them. Or if they are, doesn't understand them. Only in silence do we grow. Only in silence do we allow our dreams and our insights and our realizations to manifest, but also our goals. Talk to any artist, anyone, and ask them about their current project. And most of them will tell you nothing. They may hint a little bit about it, or if they're close, friend, they may say a little bit. But when I write a book... I don't talk to anyone about it. You have to be directly involved in the production or to help in some way to to, to be involved, because otherwise I'm wasting my energy. I'm wasting my mental, my emotional, and my psychic energy in talking about something rather than doing and creating something.
0: Well, most people that do that don't finish what they start.
1: That's right, because they're spent. All their energy is spent. That's right. Which is another part of the the egregore. You know, when we talk about collective notions and ideas, when you see people arguing back and forth about just nonsense that they have no real knowledge of, it's just what they read on the internet or you know saw on the cover of a magazine or a newspaper headline or scroll across the bottom of their screen, all of their energy then is going where? It's not in them. It's not in their realization. It's getting spent on all this external stuff, which really they have no connection to, no, no understanding of, and again, what are they? They're, they're what we call food for the gods. They're just food. They're just fertilizer for whatever psychic entity they're feeding.
0: Well, we need to take our first break here on 21st Century Radio with Mark Stavish, Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny in our traditions. And uh, also contact him through the hermeticinstitute.org. Now, do you think we think this book is important? Well, obviously, we do.
1: Hi, I'm Glenn Kreisberg, author of Spirits in Stone and co-founder of the Overlook Mountain Center in Woodstock, New York, overlookmountain.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Keep listening. Are you there, Mark? I'm um, here. You know, but I want to say thank you very much for that. You, know, you were talking early, just when you went off the, from before the break, about you know the cost of the production here, and, and, and folks need to understand that. You know, at the time, age that we live in, these things cost money to have. You know, good shows with uh, that are informative and educational, and and that's what they've got here. So, your branding of 21st Century Radio is an egregore, and it's a positive one.
0: So. Well, thank you, good old egregore uh, There, yeah. <laughs> no, but this is something that we. Uh, most people don't realize we don't make any money on this show. We pay for it. And (laughs) and that's the reason why, and I'm sure there are things that you do that are very similar because some things are just so important that in the area that I live in Baltimore, which needs to learn more and more, not just about this, but about so many other things uh, that are not talked about on corporate radio. And since we're really not corporate well, what we'd like to do is make sure that this information gets out there. And and uh, the, all the guests that we've had on have all been so generous in many different ways from that standpoint. Because it's important to them to, yes, I'm sure that they all want to make some money by selling their books. But but most importantly is the knowledge within. And uh, I, I'm much concerned, as many others are, about the problem of books from the standpoint of in the future, I don't know how many more decades we've got. Of, I just love holding books and reading them. Um, you know, I I just love it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that may be my egregore or whatever. But but uh, from that standpoint, I just love learning, and and that's just a wonderful thing to be able to do these kind of things. So it, it's uh, it's it's more or less like. I guess you might say in the, in the old days, in 1968, we say it was just kind of my karma from this standpoint to, <laughs> to, to, to help uh, put that together. It's the same way we found the AUM Esoteric Study Center, which was the first in the country to, to uh, uh, get state support and being granted uh, so that we could grant degrees and that kind of thing. It was a hell of a thing to accomplish, and uh, I'm glad that, we did it so many decades ago from that standpoint. Well, okay, back to where we were, we were talking about the magical practices upon politics and world events. I don't know if you finished talking about that.
1: Well, I mean, we just see it all the time, and, and we see it in ways that are not necessarily what we think of as magical. We think of magic as really limited to the notion of rituals and, and uh, in a very strict sense. But it's really anything that begins to direct... Uh, and suggest to, with expected outcomes, uh, generally physically speaking, but first emotional and psychological and then resulting in some kind of physical act of an individual. So um, magic, of course, is a manipulation of images and ideas and, and energies, if you want to call emotions, with the idea of an expected outcome. So anytime we're exposed to advertising or marketing, uh, to some degree, we could call that magic, to some degree. Um, but here, when we talk about magic, we're also saying, does this pull in other entities? That's really the question, isn't it? Does this pull in some kind of metaphysical reality that we don't experience on a day-to-day basis? And the answer is yes. You're dealing with power on such a profound level. we are dealing with human emotions. I mean... What it takes for an individual to want to be a congressman, a senator, you know, a president, a prime minister, these are powerful emotions, powerful desires. And we, you know, they, they all sell themselves to some greater or lesser degree as, you know, saviors of the people. But at the end of the day, you know, very few are that. Mm-hmm. And with that, as we focus on these things, whether we like to admit to it or not or acknowledge it or not, we surround ourselves with a variety of psychic energies or forces. And we give a very good example of that in the book. And In fact, uh, it was uh, mentioned we had uh, a book that almost everyone is familiar with, most all your listeners, you know, uh, Gustav Davidson's The Dictionary of Angels. Oh, yeah. And he talks about, as he's writing this book on angels, how... You know, he was bedeviled by angels and in the introduction he talks about the different experiences he had uh, probably the most famous one was um, Robert Masters oh okay. gosh, and of, yeah.
0: oh you had a great section in your book on masters and uh, and his wife I spent a lot of time with his wife my wife spent a lot of time with masters mm-hmm. uh, uh, would you tell us a little bit about them
1: well, sure. And in the book, we have uh, Robert Masters and his wife Jean Houston, who wrote Mind Games. And I think John Lennon did a song to Mind Games. Yes, he I, sure I did. Yes, he, yeah, did. he did. I didn't yeah. know it
0: was connected.
1: And in that book, she talks about the creation of an egregore or a collective mind. And in fact, the whole book, Mind Games, is written for the purpose. It's written as, and it's not to be read. It's to be read to the group for the specific creation of a egregore, of a a group mind. It's very clear that's what it's about. Well, her husband, uh, that is Robert Masters, was writing a book called Eros and Evil, The Sexual Pathology of Witchcraft. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was written sometime in the mid-60s, I I think, early 60s, mid-60s. Oddly enough, he he went out to the Ozarks, uh, I think to Arkansas to, to write it. And he tells this story of, you know, he's doing all this research, which means he had to have taken it with him. You know, he probably took, you know, we'll say a couple of, you know, boxes of books with him or manuscripts to do this research. And he said suddenly he realizes that everything he's reading about is, like, happening around him. You know, like, the, he's on a farm. He's got dead cows in his yard. The, the creek dries up. There's bugs everywhere. Um, there's infestations of spiders. There's just general doom and gloom and power that hangs over the house and his friends who visit him just say this is what do you Robert what are you doing here this, this place is just horrible and so everything is just going terrible for him and then finally when he finishes the book and sends the manuscript and everything lifts it's all gone it disappears mm-hmm. and his description of it I think is in the small book which you wrote called um is swimming where madmen drown
0: yes I think I th- that, yeah I think that's the name
1: of it. I believe that's where it is. Uh, Swimming or madman Drown. And he gives a description of it in there. And of course you can find it online or you can read it in the book too. Now the point here is that our mind, because of the emotional nature of psychic energies, becomes a conduit or a frequency or a tuning fork, if you will, to the ideas we keep spending all of our time on. And... Nature doesn't care. Nature's indifferent. Okay. People have to grasp their head around that. We, we're dealing with duality. And in duality, nature is indifferent. So if you want to spend all your time on this, and it's healthy and good for you, fantastic. If you want to spend all your time on this, and it's destructive, fantastic. Okay, No different than if you want to... You know, have a, a diet of a pound of sugar a day or, you know, a healthy diet a day. Nature doesn't care. It just responds accordingly because that's how we as individuals grow. That's how we learn how to make decisions. You know, something we're always intervening all the time and keeping us from learning how to solve our problems. I mean, if we had a giant nanny state, then, you know, then no one would ever grow because there'd never be any friction, at least in theory, right? right. problems. Mm-hmm. So you have... That's why utopias are, are ultimately always degrade in totalitarian states. That's why I don't trust anyone who tries to sell me a utopia. It's going to be hell on earth. It can't be any other way. History shows us that. So when we when we focus our, our minds on all these things, we draw them to us. We draw them right to us, and then we begin to experience them more and more in our environment. That's why I place so much emphasis on media. You know, I mean, I'll get Netflix, and Netflix is like dystopian future central. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <That's right>. yes.
1: <laughs> and what's the message is constantly feeding you.
0: Well, what are some of the most powerful egregores that we are encountering today? Is it just media or more beyond that?
1: Well, media is the mechanism. Media is the delivery. It's not the message. I mean, you know, the medium is the message to some degree in that it's visual so it goes in more easily and we, we react to it more quickly. But, you know, political correctness, it's an insidious and destructive parasitical entity, okay? We see it particularly, uh, as I saw it in social services and education, how how fundamentally evil it is. You have fundamentalist Islam, okay, which is a powerful and destructive entity, you know, international. Um, We have, you know, of course, the war on terror and the surveillance state. The surveillance state is, is what we've come to accept in the name of security. Keep me safe from myself. Keep me safe from everything. Life isn't safe. That's all there is to it. You know, so if you if you want to trade off your security, you know, all the time, all the time, then you're not going to have any. You're not going to have any any anything. I'm the try- techno utopia and and these all tie into each other. They dovetail. They're not just one or the other. They're a reflection of our age. And then, of course, there's the techno utopia, uh, that wonderful one that they keep you know shoveling out at us from uh, Silicon Valley, in Northern California. I mean, this notion that we're going to have transhumanism and. Live on eternally in our sex bots, and just be you know perfect in that way. You know all of these are, are potent egregores, and of course, then dystopian futures too. This notion that uh, you know the the future is going to be just a uh, one giant uh, you know crapfest, and you know, it's probably going to be a combination of things back and forth because change is what we're always going to be facing. Things always come and go and change. But all of these are powerful, competing emotional drives that have within them different audiences that they appeal to. But they all keep people from having to be responsible for themselves and to discover their own inner spiritual nature.
0: That seems to be the danger throughout losing uh, your inner contact, your inner work. But the way I work in my artwork is just as you would never tell anybody what your book is all about before you've written it. I would never discuss with anybody exactly what I'm painting and why I'm doing it. I will, I will explain it afterwards, but never mm-hmm. before. Uh, because that also allows me to see if I am a- able to communicate better in that way. If, and that, that is important to me from the standpoint of the some of the murals that I've done, especially the ones at Johns Hopkins University uh, that, that deal with our country losing its democracy and becoming uh, more or less an, uh, an oligarchy and corporate dominance and control from that standpoint. We're, hey, we're about ready to take another break here, Dr. Courtner? Yes, we are. Break number 75 with Mark Stavish. Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny inner traditions.
1: Hello, this is Cynthia Andrews, co-author of On the Edge of Reality. You can learn more about me at my website, thepathofenergy.com, and you are listening to the twenty first century radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus.
0: With our guest Mark Stavish. Again, the book is Egregores, the Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny Inner Traditions. Um you note that the Martinist order and its numerous variations have played a major role in European and American esotericism in the twentieth century. Could you provide some examples, please?
1: Well, I think that um, you know the Martinist order, uh, which began uh, in the late nineteenth century, uh, under the guidance primarily of Papu. Uh, had many uh, variations and uh, there are many uh, versions of that order uh, today, some of them large, some of them small. Probably the most significant is the, in size that is, is the Traditional Martinist Order or TMO, which is essentially a branch of the Rosicrucian Order Amwork. And um, they are, as they build themselves, a Christian uh, chivalric order, or Christian mysticism. And I think within that degree, uh, they maintain uh, a structure of initiation, three degrees, of which the third is the most important uh, for members, of um, teaching the fundamentals of, of, of basic uh, mysticism, Kabbalah, uh, esoteric theory and practice, uh, and what they call the way of the heart. And uh, that's because of the profound influence of the writings of uh, Jacob Buma, um on uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, Uh, and his his writings. So that has had a a big influence. I don't think people know of it as much or as well as, say, the Golden Dawn. Of course, the Golden Dawn is is magically oriented. Uh, Martinism had, and different groups have varying uh, expressions of this, a, a magical component or a theurgic component, but that's later on. That's after you've kind of gotten your third degree, and not all of them have that. Martinism is a very nice group, and TMO, I mean, I, I enjoyed it back when I was in it, and uh, I found it very very helpful in many ways.
0: And it still exists.
1: Yes, it does. It does. Uh, and uh, there, of course, you can go online and look up Martinism, and you'll see, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 different Martinist groups. Uh, it's hard to say which ones to join and which ones to avoid without seeing them by name. Mm-hmm. And, and they all are a little different. you know. Uh, what's nice, and, and the thing about TMO is if you're in it, um, they tend to have local groups, heptads, as they call them, or chapters. And uh, you can go there and get your initiation. Um, and so do the other groups. Other groups are a little different. They have their, their rituals, too. Uh, but it's uh, it was a, a continuity or survival, an attempt of at revivification of an egregore, is what it was, by Papu, of the... Egregore of Louis-Claude de Martin, okay, St. Martin, and his mystical teachings from the late 18th century uh, after he uh, left his affiliation with uh, Martinez Pascuales, who was uh, the founder of the Elu-Cohen, or the elect Cohen, the elect priests, knights of the, of uh, or elect priests of the universe. And uh, that was his magical order in France. And that exists today as well. And for, we're very fortunate because in the last, I think maybe the last six months even, might be the last year, but the last six months even, there have been some publications in English of translations of some of the original um, Eloquhain text. So, Hmm. we live in a wonderful time uh, for getting a lot of French occult material translated in English, uh, and there's a lot of wonderful stuff, but at the end of the day, it needs to one be practiced. Now Eloquhain's placed a great deal of emphasis on their egregore, and so does Martinism. Martinism places a great deal of emphasis on that psychic channel, if you will, that connects it to the invisible. And uh, for those who'd like to learn more about it, I mean, the best book, probably the finest book, that encapsulates the totality of Martinist teachings in English is uh, Meditations on the Tarot.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh,
1: Supposedly by an anonymous author. The, the, The author's real name escapes me at the moment. But it's uh, something so, subtitled, I believe, something, A Path of Christian Hermeticism or something like that. Yeah. But it's called Meditations on the Tarot, and um, uh, that is probably one of the finest books of its kind. Now, listeners should be aware that the book is fantastic, but it does have a very particular French, European, Catholic, esoteric bent to it. Okay? Mm-hmm. But it's highly informative. It's a wonderful book, and, and it's quoted. I quote it extensively yes, in the, you do. in egregores. Yes.
0: Well, are celebrities and the cult of personality a sort of egregore?
1: Oh, most definitely. In fact, they, they they're almost in the, they're they're the perfect example of it in so many ways because they they seek to create an apotheosis. You know, this creation of almost a, a divination of the person that all this energy is being focused on. I mean, they're, they're the ultimate modern vampiric cult you know like, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to suck the uh the, the psychosexual energy of adolescence and 20-somethings everywhere uh into their uh into their creation of their their image of themselves and their empire their media image and empire
0: well in your it's, uh, in your book you discuss the question of where does fantasy become fact uh you look at the famous Angel of Mons phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that, and why is it important?
1: Well, Angel of Mons is, is wonderful because it's it's based on a, a fictional article that was written by Arthur Machen, or some say Machen. I have to check the pronunciation of that, in 1914. And he was a member of the Golden Dawn for a period of time, and uh, he knew weight, and uh, so he had an interest in these things as, as in many people in, in those literary circles, and um, he wrote propaganda, you know, for the British War Office for the home front, and he wrote this book, or excuse me, this article, uh, which was a piece of fiction. Really, when the uh, the war became apparent, when it was not going to be over in, in six months.
0: Yeah, you know, the guy,
1: yeah, this was August 1914, or a little bit after August 1914, and. Uh, the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, uh, had been shattered and and was in retreat. And um, he wrote this fictional article. uh, And if anyone looks at newspapers of the period, you'll notice that you have poetry in there, you have gossip columns, you have a lot of things in there that you don't have in modern newspapers, except maybe some small-town ones that still might exist out there. So there was this fiction in there as well, but it wasn't labeled as such. And the story goes that on the battlefield, as the, uh, the terrible Hun is advancing, and of course, you know, anyone who's really studied World War I realizes there were no good guys or bad guys in that. You know, this was just a battle between empires. Mm-hmm. There is nothing morally, if anything, one can make the argument that the French and the British were morally uh, worse than the Germans. We can even make say the Belgians were the Belgians had more colonial holdings. If you want to really talk about it in the in that framework, okay. So w- within that, that domain, the, the, the British are in retreat. Things are horrible, and we have this story of how this angel appears on the battlefield, and suddenly the BEF is rescued. Okay, and it goes from being uh, ex- excuse me, it goes from being like archers on the battlefield to angels on the battlefield. To angelic knights on the battlefield, and all of these things are being said now, this took off. I mean remember the country is in despair because suddenly they realize what they're in for, and people don't realize as we come upon the you know the hundredth you know the end of the hundredth anniversary of World War one, you had entire graduating classes from entire towns that were wiped out, yeah. I want you to think about that. I want you to think of your entire graduating class. All the male members of it, except for maybe five of them, dead. Okay, and that's that's what it did. It wiped out entire towns, okay, on both sides of the conflict. So it was a terrible event. So people took on this. Preachers were preaching this story from the pulpit, and it just took off like wildfire. Now, It wasn't true, but people believed it. And then when they would interview soldiers, soldiers would often say things like they thought they saw something. Well, they had been in retreat. You know, they had not slept for two or three days. They were thirsty. They were probably, I don't think they were gassed by that time, but, you know, they were still not in a good mental state. Um, They're hallucinating a variety of things. Who knows what they were really seeing? But they were beginning to tell the stories if it were true. So the British Society for Psychological Research actually went and investigated it, and they said that there was no support for any of the stories of ever actually happening. And they, they researched it very early. The war was still ongoing when they were involved with it. Um, so there was early efforts to try and understand it. But that's important, that you can do this, and uh, it begins to be true. There's a, there's a saying, I don't have the words in front of me, but there's actually a Sanskrit saying, about you know pounding the post, meaning if you pound the post often enough, people will begin to believe that it's true. Just say it over and over mm-hmm. again, and it's the basis of what's called the big lie,
0: yeah, that's right, but
1: yeah, <laughs> but if you look at it it's it's again when when we trail things back, always ask, you know who does this benefit, who does this serve you know where where are my ideals being manipulated here mm-hmm. and that's the thing. how am I being pulled along here? Rather than, is this possible? It's like I said to you earlier, you're not going to solve hunger and starvation. It's not going to happen. But you can mitigate it to some degree where you're at. You can do some good where you're at. All the great teachings have said that. You can do some good where you're at. But at the end of the day, spiritually speaking, we have to come to know ourselves first. And only then can we actually do what we think of as the true good or the real good of helping alleviate human suffering, which is fundamentally comes from ignorance. And what egregores do is they can either help us along that line towards independence, just as crutches help someone who is injured begin to walk again, or a child learn from crawling to walking to standing, like we said, the bumpers, or they can become a shackle, something which holds us back. It's really up to us in that regard. I think maybe in terms of when, when do thoughts become realities, we see that with um, my, my favorite one was the example, it's getting dated now, but uh, not as dated as Angel of Mons, but the, the famous Slender Man phenomena from a few years ago.
0: Yeah, you meant to talk about that in your book as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that took off and, and became the subject of several movies. You know, And then the movies become, uh, you know, they feed into that psychic energy.
0: Especially yeah. for young people, children. Right. Uh, and you also note that evil does not need to control everyone. It just needs to influence the right one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk about this for us, please. It's we, pretty about, simple. We've got only they a couple minutes left, so I thought yeah, this was I, important.
1: You know, if you, if you, if you have to – I don't need to control everyone to get the job done. I just need to control the right ones. Mm-hmm. And a perfect example of that would be I don't need to influence everyone. I just need to influence the 12.5% that vote, if you want to put it in those terms. I don't need to – influence you know the entire board of directors I just need to influence the people who really make the decisions if you're involved in nonprofit organizations or any volunteer groups you know how true that is so when we when we look at uh, good or evil it's always a matter of you know it, we don't need to influence everyone we just need to influence the decision makers the people who have access to what people see what people read what people hear what they watch now, hence again, my, my statement about Netflix. You know, well, I hope
0: it. I hope we have convinced some of our listeners out there to get a copy of this book, because we're just about out of time. And I want to thank you for joining us. I enjoyed it so much, Mark. It's been yeah, it's been a long time, but, but still.
1: Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been great, and feel free to invite me back any time.
0: Indeed, we will. And that's the end of the hour. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company, and our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Courtner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember to get a haircut.